that was like a fantastic summary of um yeah some really amazing races keith um around that time um and that era um in auckland and new zealand running um how how much were you influenced by arthur lydiard and uh and his principles um and and if you were to describe those those principles um arthur lydiard's principles in just sort of three simple paragraphs what 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 would they be lots of running at gentle aerobic paces for as long as you can yep totally avoid work above the anaerobic threshold or where you start to huff and puff for as many years as you can develop a huge aerobic foundation and then you've built the prerequisites for a super athlete <laughs> so we we used to totally believe because it was all around us that it was possible to very much improve your oxygen uptake significantly although uh, exercise physiologists since those days have come out in their books and, and stated things like Timothy Noakes Tim Noakes the, he's a very good writer um he said it wasn't possible to increase your oxygen uptake by more than 15%, no matter how you trained. But we had case after case after case of, of men like um, Johnny Robinson, who started off running enthusiastically when he was a teenager. Uh, at the age of 16, I don't believe Johnny Robinson could break five minutes for the mile. So he wasn't the most talented guy going around. But what he had was a lot of patience and tenacity, which is all Arthur Liddy had wanted from an athlete, someone who'd turn up and do the work. So Johnny Robinson trained and did the work, and uh, eventually at the age of 35, he PR'd in the marathon, made the Commonwealth Games, and he did two hours 15, and then wow. he represented New Zealand in orienteering after that, yep. well into his 40s and 50s. Huh. Still got a good head of hair on him now, and. Uh, <laughs> well into his 80s now but uh, guys like that uh, they're all around the place and uh, the uh, there were so many masters athletes or veteran athletes well over 40 who could break 2 hours 20 for the marathon you know and uh, yeah, guys like Jack Foster running who was 2 hours 11 silver medal in the Commonwealth Games you know growing up and when you see that all it is is these guys you, you can keep up with on the long Sunday run uh, and, and you realise that some of them have, you know, been very competitive at, at world level and world cross country or on the track, then you sort of think, well, maybe I can do that as well. And so that was the running culture growing up in New Zealand. And then uh, because of Arthur Lydiard, I mean, Arthur Lydiard was totally uh, whatever Arthur said was just like might as well have been in the bible you know yeah. if he said you, you, you needed to do this you did that because he um i was speaking with my old coach barry the other day on on, on my own uh, sort of interview platform yeah and he, he was he was saying that the thing with arthur was he, t he spoke with total authority like like he he had a handle on everything he spoke about 
to me, I think he was almost Svengali, like a, uh, he could speak stuff into you. Um, <laughs> Lorraine Wallace, I mean, he looked looked at her with his piercing eyes and he had a big hook nose, which is like an eagle's beak. And he just looked in the eyes and said, you can meddle in this Olympics, Lorraine. Um, this is before Barcelona. And she'd been a, uh, lucky to get selected in one way, but she, she had such a pedigree of running under the extended uh, instruction of Arthur Liddy over many years that uh, he had total faith in her ability to get a medal. And she'd had little doubts, but after Arthur looked at her in the eyes uh, and told her that she could medal or get a medal or go for it, it gave her permission to um, see what she could do. So this is what Arthur Liddy was like in New Zealand. Um, he was like a the match that lights the um, the thundercracker, you know, like he, he just he just tell people they could do stuff. He's super encourager. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, that's that's awesome. Um, it's just so interesting hearing all these stories. Um, yeah, um, because yeah, we just I I think growing up in the modern day, like obviously we don't have Arthur Lydiard with us anymore. So it's so so great to hear it um from you like just a personal experience um welcome to the run culture podcast my name is dane verway i'm an experienced runner and running physiotherapist i created this podcast not only so i had an excuse to talk running each and every week something that i love to do But more importantly, this podcast gives me the opportunity to interview fellow runners, friends and health professionals in a relaxed and easygoing format. This podcast is designed for the everyday runner, so we can all live, learn, grow and enjoy everything there is to running together. I hope you enjoy the show. of the Run Culture podcast. Today I'm extremely fortunate to be chatting to Dr. Keith Livingston. Keith was a high-level distance runner, having run 1404 for 5k and 2919 for 10k. Keith was a renowned and established chiropractor and running coach. He is also an author of three books, including Healthy Intelligent Training, The Proven Principles of Arthur Lydiard, Champions Are Everywhere, The Schedules, and Staring Down the Beast, a book that details Keith's journey since being diagnosed with a terminal brain tumour, glioblastoma multiform. Dr. Keith Livingston also has a great website, www.drkeith.com.au, with a lot of great articles and blogs. Welcome to the podcast, Keith. Thank you, Dane. Keith, I wanted to yeah just start with how did you get into running? Well, growing up where I did in Aoraka in Auckland in New Zealand, um, couldn't help but because that was about where we grew up. My brother and I, I've got a twin brother, Colin, who's also a distance runner and a coach in the UK now. Yep. Where we grew up in in New Zealand was 500 metres away from where Arthur Lydiard lived as the crow flies. So uh, <laughs> right in the epicenter of 
distance running central was where we landed when we emigrated from Kenya, where we'd been born. So we emigrated after Kenyan independence to New Zealand, uh, where we landed and where mum decided to set up home because she came by herself and we had to leave my father behind. Um, just happened to be in the middle of Lydiard zone. You know, you know, New Zealand's called God zone. Well, <laughs> I call Oraka Lydiard zone because all the great runners, or most of the great runners in New Zealand um, running history, many of them just were, were neighbourhood kids. Uh, we're not talking about privileged neighbourhood kids either, just neighbourhood kids who... who uh, grew up in what you, you call the commission housing areas here in, in Victoria, yep. uh, or state housing, government housing areas. Pretty rough and tough area to grow up in. Um, we, we didn't live in that area, but um, we were very aware of the running culture growing up, and often the Oaraka Marathon used to go past our, our flat on Oaraka Avenue, and uh, we used to stand out the front with hoses and sponges and buckets of water so that the marathon runners uh, could cool themselves down. And so we were very aware of, of running and runners and uh, all of that. And then, of course, we had the Olympics. Uh, where first of all, um, we used to watch the Olympics because we loved watching the Kenyans because we come from Kenya and then a, a distant cousin of one of our... Um, uh, helpers uh, at our home, uh, one of our African men, uh, one of his distant cousins was a guy called Choggy Kano, and we were very aware of him in the Mexico Olympics in 1968 because he and the other Kenyans just ran away, so we became quite big fans of athletics. And then, um, of course, in 72, Rod Dixon came through, um, we vaguely heard of this guy, but he, he nabbed the bronze medal in the 1500 metres in the 1972 Olympics. So that sort of tweaked a, a bit of a chord there. And uh, then 1974 came around and uh, I was in my fourth form year at school. Or I was, I was uh, about 15 and at, at that age you're incredibly impressionable. Well, I was, you know, and... Uh, Filbert by taking off in the 1974 Commonwealth Games with everyone thundering after him. Um, Walker nearly catching him in the straight. That was amazing. But that was after the 10,000 metres where Dick Taylor uh, just romped away in the 10,000 metre final. And so, you know, your imagination gets stirred right up by all this great athletics. So um, that's where the love affair of athletics was born. And also... I'd been a very sickly child. I'd, I'd, uh, when I was two, I'd suffered from uh, a condition called intersusception, which is uh, like a strangulation of your intestine, large intestine, and uh, it can kill you. Uh, and if you have it, um, you know, often if it's not treated within seven days, it'll kill you apparently. And I've learned this since, long since, but I had it three times when I was two. It involved um, 
vomiting across rooms, like um, projectile vomiting. Jeez. And I was uh, hospitalized and operated on by a Kiwi surgeon yeah. who operated on me in his tennis gear. With his, <laughs> uh, yeah, with the surgical gown on, apparently, and uh, <laughs> did the job, did a good job, sent me home, and then apparently, um, well, I was at home because my mother was a teacher and we lived on the compound of the st- school where she lived. And to cut a long story short, uh, the stitches burst open by themselves nine days after the operation. So uh, then one of because in, in Kenya we had servants, you see. So um, yeah, the servant uh, Eric Chuma, he he was he was the cousin of Kipchoge Kano, but they're all cousins over there. They all <laughs> extended family. But anyway, he ran like the clappers from the house to Mum's classroom. Uh, got me sorted, uh, another operation, but from there on, uh, through my childhood, whenever I tried to run, uh, I c- could sometimes do it. Uh, sometimes afterwards I'd be in abject pain and, uh, curled up like a fetus because the pain was colic because my yep. bowel had twisted because the scar tissue from the adhesions, yep. uh, had twisted the bowel up and I, I couldn't for the life of me straighten my body out or anything. So I, I was uh, not the most athletic kid. I never won a sprint race or anything like that. But uh, what I could do was swim a long way underwater. So I, I uh, could swim further underwater than any kid in my class. Okay. And so I knew I had something. And then later on, uh, I played soccer at a school called Sacred Heart College in Auckland, which is um, Amaris Brothers School. And I noticed that in the class for Z runs, um, there's a big, uh, strong athlete at school who, who could always win the 400 and the 800 in my age group, you know, and no one could touch him. But he started to get quite tired, I noticed, on, on these runs we had to do across the soccer fields and back for training for soccer. I thought, I, I reckon I can get this guy. Yeah. So I, uh, I just thought I'd try him out one day and he he couldn't hang on. So I thought, yeah. oh, I'll just get Roger to dwell and he became a, became a windsurfing champion. But, uh, uh-huh. oh, he was very good. But uh, yeah. I knew I could run and then it grew from there and uh, read all the snail books and things in the, in the school library and I still got one from the library. And uh, I ran in my first 100-mile week, you know, the Lydiard Way when I was 17 uh, over the school holidays. I I had a school holiday job in the the post office and I ran into the post office in the morning uh, with my backpack and then the showers there at the post office in Auckland Central. Then afterwards I'd run home and uh, did that twice a day over the summer holidays and I racked up my first 100 mile week when I was 17 and because I had to pay for my own running shoes, um, yeah. my running shoes were Adidas Malmo gum rubber sold <laughs> basketball basketball shoes. So um, <laughs> that's what I was running in then. Yep. Right. Quite often I'd run in, in bare feet when I was 
boarding school at, at, you know, around the waterfront in Auckland, just in bare feet, just to toughen up the feet and uh, sometimes go eight or nine miles by myself um, on these scoria paths and things. And so, yeah, I laid a foundation of um, my own foundation um, from what I thought I was supposed to be doing, but it was all, a lot of it was very wrong what I was doing, but um, I wouldn't train kids like that now, but I, that's what I did and that's how I started. Okay. And um, at that time when you were 17, I, I read that you actually won an Auckland 3000 metre title and cross country title. Um, were you self-coached or were you starting, was that when you were starting to get some guidance from Barry McGee, one of... Um, oh, I, yeah. I was self-coached at first, yep. but later on I, I got guidance from Barry in terms of just, you know, schedules, which was sort of organised and structured and, and uh, um, yeah, but I, I was just very enthusiastic. I, I was at this Catholic school where... Well, these days it's it's really gone on, and they've they've actually won cross country titles and all that sort of stuff. But back then it was just rugby and cricket in the Catholic school system, and um, so if you're a good runner, there's no real support. You know, I had to enter all the championships myself and do all the paperwork on behalf of the school and get it done through the school office, things like that. It wasn't very good. So I was a mad enthusiast, but I was always reading whatever I could and uh, so I luckily we had the Peter Snell book No Bugles No Drums in the school library and I read that and I read about the Waiatarua and uh, so I, I I did run a few Waiataruas by myself when I realised where the course went and to get the exact course um, I had a friend who had a friend who lived next door to Peter Snell who lived in a big two story home on a Posh Street in Mount Albert, which is our <laughs> suburb. Um, and he went and knocked on the door and Peter Snell answered apparently and uh, wrote him a little map of good luck on it. <laughs> the and then I, I got that map from my friend Gavin. Yep. And um, once I knew where the Waiatarua course actually went, because its first part's okay, you go just up to the top of the the hills on the scenic drive but there's a little loop that goes off it on bush tracks and if you didn't know where that was you'd just be get a bit lost but anyway um i was going around that that course and um got very fit on endurance and uh you know like had legs like three foot blood vessels and uh <laughs> Yeah. Blood vessels sticking out all over my legs, you know, and I, I, I decided I'd enter the Auckland Championships. I'd never been in an Auckland Championships or joined a club before. So it was all new stuff. And then I was told by this club coach on no account to try and get into the first three because they were very, very, very good runners. And I, I wouldn't have a hope in Hades of, of uh, getting anywhere near them. So this guy had never seen me run before, never knew anything about me. And then he said, he asked me, how much running have you been doing, son? And I said, oh, 100 miles a week. <laughs> and he said, oh, like, like I was, you know, lying. Yep. So I stuffed you. So um, anyway, uh, went in this race and after about halfway or 
near the mile, I was actually getting quite bored because I was felt like I was just jogging on the spot. Yeah. But uh, I must have been very, very fit aerobically because uh, I remember started to dig in and then stretch out and turning around all the time to see where everyone else was because all these guys were sort of kiddie superstars, you know, like yep. underage runners who, who's uh, they all were terribly aware of each other, but none of them knew me and I didn't know anything from a bar of soap. So I'd sort of come in the middle of this sort of established pecking order and uh, found myself in the lead. And then a guy called Kevin Ryan ran down from the track side. He, he was in my club and he was a, uh, our local club hero, like he was the two hour 11 marathon runner. And um, Kevin came down because he later said he couldn't bear watching this barefooted kid um, <laughs> turning around all the time, mucking up a race. So <laughs> I remember him yelling out, um, Stop turning around, you little bugger. <laughs> um, and he said, Every time you turn around, you lose a meter. So I was listened to Kevin because he was a guy you listened to, and I just went for it and I won by oh, more than the length of the straight, I think. Um, I, I, maybe I won by fifteen seconds, fourteen seconds, but um, at the time it was a an under eighteen record for three thousand meters. Not because it was exceptionally fast, but because that's just when metrics had come in. So. I think the previous record was a time of something like well over nine minutes, nine minutes five or something. I ran eight minutes fifty-four, and that was my first ever um, competitive three thousand meters, and um, so that was a good start. And then uh, went on from there, and I I didn't continue with the hundred mile weeks at all because um, I was back at boarding school, so I I just ran when I could and. Uh, those days, quite often my long run, I'd run across to a mountain called Mount Wellington, which was a big volcanic cone uh, with an old Maori fort on it. And I just run to the top of that and back um, about nine miles or 14 K maybe. And I just get runs in like that. So I wasn't doing exceptionally long runs, um, although Yeah, yeah, I was just, just doing 30 or 40 miles a week or, yep. um, just to stay fit and uh, gave away the soccer and, and, and those sports because when you're in a team sport, you're held down by the uh, courage or lack of courage of your teammates. So running for me was something I could do for myself and by myself and not be held back by... Uh, you know, the ambitions of others or lack of ambition. So I I won the Auckland Schools Cross Country, which was really that was the that was the Olympics of my <laughs> of my uh, youth. You know, like yep. when I was had started running in the fifth form or when I was fifteen, I thought, man, all I want to do is win the school cross country because I thought that all the girls would like it when you came <laughs> to watch the the, uh, the school sports, you know, the sisters of all the guys there. And I thought that would be, you know, the acme yep. pinnacle of, of my running, running yep. the school cross country. But when I did that the first time, um, uh, 
that was a bit sort of passe pretty quickly. Then, then my vista increased and I thought, well, I wonder if I can win the Auckland schools cross country because that was like huge, like, you know, um, the ultimate. Yeah. And it, I won that by 25 seconds and I remember a guy who was an exceptionally good uh, under 17, under 18, 800 meter runner. He was running one minute 54 for 800 meters um, at that age. And I remember him being right beside me uh, over the first kilometre or two and uh, his coach yelling out something like, get him on the hills, Eddie, get him on the hills. And I turned around and I swore at the guy and said, like hell. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so I, I took off and I won that. I won that one by about 25 seconds. And uh, so I had an Auckland School Boys cross-country title. Okay. Yeah. And so from there, um, what was the next step with your running? Because, um, uh, like, I, I've read that you ended up in 82 going, coming over to Australia to study your chiropractic degree. Um, like, uh, for, for between your school schoolboy career and, and um, going to Australia, what was next? I got a job with Radio New Zealand, actually, as a cadet, a radio cadet, and that was fantastic because uh, I got to learn... Um, I mean, at school, I was clever enough in the school subjects to, um, you know, um, everyone was saying I should go and study medicine, but when yeah. I sort of investigated it, uh, I decided to go down and spend an afternoon with a local GP up the road from the, the school I was at and I was bored out of my brain. Uh, <laughs> it was so dry and uh, uh, lifeless and, uh, you know, it was, didn't strike a chord in me at all. And I thought, well, why would I go to uni and spend five or six years studying yep. medicine uh, when all they do is they just sit in an office and write out prescriptions. <laughs> now, I'm not being rude about medical practitioners or medical practice, but that was my impression as a 17-year-old. So that's... Yep. But then I heard a, an ad on the radio when I was studying at night in boarding school, and it was for a cadetship at Radio New Zealand where um, you could uh, learn all aspects of radio, the technical side, the sales, the... Uh, copywriting, commercials, uh, all aspects. And, and uh, there were a cadetship in each major city in New Zealand. So I was one of only 10 radio cadets in New Zealand. Um, and, oh, yeah, was, I, I did it because if I went to university, I wouldn't be able to run. So running dictated everything even then because I thought, well, how am I going to be able to afford to um, train and race and do these things unless if I get a regular job. And I thought, well, being at a radio station would be pretty fun and pretty easy. Uh, but uh, eventually I became a radio copywriter after having a spin at journalism. Um, but that's another story, so I, I won't I, yeah. I'll just cut through. But anyway, I, I did five years in Radio New Zealand and uh, did stints in Christchurch where I made the Canterbury team in, in the track uh, in 1978. Then I did another stint back in Auckland in 1979-80. Uh, 
then I left Radio New Zealand for a few months to train full time for what I thought would be a, a US road tour with Auckland athletes in 1980, but promptly got injured and learned all about uh, not having an income and uh, being a full time runner without an income. So <laughs> yeah. I uh, rejoined Radio New Zealand in Wellington. And that was fantastic because in Wellington, I, I luckily um, secured a place with some excellent flatmates really close to the centre of town and I had a perfect training base. And so I just had a really big year of mileage there and uh, built substantially on the mileage I'd done in 1979. Um, then I had this this break of injury when I decided to become a full time runner. Yep. Uh, but I averaged oh well about hundred and four miles a week for every week of the year in nineteen eighty one. I know that because that was my total in my diary at the end of the year. I haven't got that diary anymore because it got stolen from my motorbike. <laughs> on Christmas Eve at the end of that year. So I remember the numbers. But um, I just used to have a, a weekly rhythm of just running, mostly on the road, um, aerobic running. And that was more than enough for me with my physiology to run well right down to 3,000 metres. Um, yep. you know, by well, I mean at national level in New Zealand in those days, which was um, extremely competitive. And, uh, but I, I made a lot of mistakes on the way, which is why, why I know stuff now, because I made every mistake in a book. So uh, anyway, I've, I thought uh, after one injury, um, I had in that 1979, 1980 period, um, I'd very fast finishing after a very slow start in the national road championships, primarily because I hadn't warmed up very well <laughs> at all. So I just used the first half of this race as a warm up, and then I shot home, ran a tad under 23 minutes for the last 8k or five miles. Wow. Um, which I was just flying, um, but that was just because of all the aerobic running I was doing. I was doing constant mileage, you know, with, um, and uh, with about 110, 120 miles a week, which is um, probably getting up to what Steve Monaghetti was doing a while back. But um, but I was doing that by myself mostly and just enjoying it. I used to train with friends like. Chris Pauline, who I believe you interviewed recently. Yeah. So there's a crew of us always out there running and enjoying the running life. And that was great. And uh, that's all I needed. And uh, in Wellington, I managed to cobble together a really big year of mileage. And uh, I won the, I went down there in my first race in Wellington. I got 43rd in the Wellington cross country title. But uh, that was after two or three weeks of jogging to try and get fit. I just hopped in this race, got 43rd. and uh, But I had this massive base from the year before, massive, massive aerobic base. And the thing about an aerobic base is it never really leaves you. Um, 
you just got to wake it up again. And it's just like lying there dormant. So I quickly got into a rhythm of long runs again. And um, over the next eight weeks, I ran on the road relays and started getting a few faster slaps in, in some of our national road relays. And then I um, ran away with the Wellington 10-mile road title. Um, by 21 seconds, I, I just ran away from the field at, you know, on, the, on the last of four laps. And um, a few weeks later, <clears throat> in the national road title, I, I got a pretty close fourth. Um, there again, coming through the field because I uh, didn't have a very good warm-up because I... Uh, we, we uh, for some reason, our team had to go up on a bus trip and uh, then we had a crop dusting plane flying over at some ungodly hour of the morning, yeah. waking me up at five in the morning, so I didn't get the best sleep. So I was a very groggy guy at the start of that race. But anyway, managed to get fourth with a very hard, fast last 800 and... Uh, then I was set for the track season. And I wanted to make the Pacific Conference Games, the 5,000 metres. So uh, uh, got second to Rod Dixon in the trial. Wow. I thought at that stage that oh, if, I, if I get a place, they'll select, select me because just in New Zealand, the Pacific Conference Games. And what time did you run? What time did you run? second in the trial. Yeah in what was a personal best at the time of 14 minutes, 11 seconds on quite a humid afternoon. Yep. But I was about 12th or 13th at, um, at 3K. I just ran a pretty hard last mile and uh, finished second to Rod Dixon. But, I mean, he was well clear, but he just taken off. So I thought, well, maybe I can get picked for these upcoming Commonwealth Games, uh, not Commonwealth Games, Pacific Conference Games, which were quite a quite a big deal locally. Um, it's an opportunity to get a black singlet and a bit of international racing. Um, but no one approached me, no New Zealand selector ever even said hello or introduced themselves. And uh, uh, so uh, I wasn't impressed by uh, the officialdom in New Zealand at that stage because there was no communication really. And uh, if there's one thing that comes out of the books of the great runners like Snell, uh, that was a culture that never really changed and possibly still hasn't. It's uh, It wasn't the communication between athletes and selectors and some way of um, encouraging youngsters to come through. So it was almost a miracle that um, anything ever did happen in the New Zealand running culture. And guys like Peter Snell had to be publicly funded by public contributions um, organised by Garth Gilmore, the running journalist who wrote the books about Arthur Lydiard and um, got very involved in raising funds to get Arthur Lydiard to the Rome Olympics. Uh, he was the coach of uh, four of the um, people in the Olympic team and three of whom medalled um, from his local running group and he wasn't allowed to have access to the actual games grounds or sports grounds. So he, he was outside of the Olympic um, fold in terms of uh, favouritism. And um, 
So there's this culture that, that I, I had no idea about, which I encountered firsthand when I was oh, 22. Uh, yeah. And then I went in a 3,000 metre race, a satellite meeting race in Auckland, where I just wanted to see if I could get as close to Rod Dixon as I could, or just, if I could, see, see if I could get past him at some stage and what would happen. Yeah, I was very fit and... Uh, so I hung in like, like anything in this race. Hot, humid afternoon as they, they were then. It should have been at night anyway. Quite a talented field. Uh, a few um, guys who later represented New Zealand in the Olympics in there. Uh, one of them I had a bit of a history with, uh, a guy called Peter Renner, uh, meaning when I was down in Christchurch, he and I didn't get on okay. really at all. Yep. So it, I, I wanted to nail him, um, <laughs> but I ne never got close as a junior because he was very, very good. But uh, I thought, well, I've improved a lot with all this aerobic running I've been doing. And uh, so anyway, I, uh, I was still there with a the lap to go. The second last lap was very slow. They dropped back to 68. Uh, for some reason, and uh, then it was all on for the last lap, and I, I did, uh, I think it was under 58 seconds for the last lap. Well, yeah. uh, and I took off past Rod Dixon with 300 meters to go. Um, I took off. I mean, I thought he was breathing hard, and yeah. Peter Renner right behind him. So I thought, well, I've got a chance here. So I, I yeah. just took off. Yeah, and I actually made a gap. And my brother's <laughs> there watching, and he said I really opened up, but uh, I had no experience really with tactics or, or how to construct a race. So, if I was put in that position now, mindset-wise, um, I'd, I'd just leave it till about one eighty maybe, and then use that same burst. Because every time you make a burst at the business end of a middle distance race or distance race, you're spiking rapid glycolysis and and, uh, and uh, acidosis in the muscles. So yep. I was going down the back straight, thinking, holy, I'm in front of Rod Dixon. And uh, <laughs> I was aware of his big looming figure behind me, but I, I actually apparently cleared out by a fair way. But then I went around the bend, uh, coming into the final bend, about 150, 130 metres, and then he went boom, <laughs> bang, right past me, like big black figure, you know, and like the night train from Chicago, like rattling past, he went boom, up the straight, just cleared out. Uh, best part of four seconds he cleared out on me by, and uh, yep. but I, I got nailed right on the line by a very talented runner who I'd never beaten at school, a guy called Paul O'Donoghue. He's the older brother of Peter O'Donoghue, who later ran for New Zealand. Uh, in the 84 Olympics after he'd beaten Steve Obet. So he was a very talented runner. But Paul was, I'd say, as talented as his younger brother. But, um, you know, the way things pan out in athletics, it's a case of injuries and um, chances. And if you miss your chance, you miss your chance. But um, anyway, he nailed me right on the line. But yeah. I thought after that that I could mix it with these guys, you know. Uh -huh. And so I thought, well, 
going to see if I can get under eight minutes in this next race, which is another 3,000 metre satellite meeting. And that was in Wellington, but Wellington is notorious for a constant wind on the back straight of its stadium there. And at that stage, it had a, um, what's called a grass text track. You might as well get concrete and pour hard rubber over it. Yeah. And so when you ran around on, on this all-weather track, all you heard was clack, 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 clack in your spikes. It was just clack, clack, clack. So my memory of that race is I, I took off from the start following these two Japanese guys, and they were going uh, like a tag team, like tag team wrestlers, you know, how they <laughs> yep. tag each other. Yeah. One would surge 100 metres, and the other one would work his way up to him, and then they'd surge. And uh, I had enough of it after three laps, and... Um, I had a big, nasty boil under my left armpit, which had come up since my race in Auckland. And I was very uncomfortable. And I'd been to the doctor that day to see if he could lance this boil. So I was running with my left arm held in a funny angle. Yeah. And uh, really grumpy and very quite, you know, very annoyed. Yeah. And then there's this little Japanese coach on the inside of the track at about the 300 meter mark, yelling instructions in Japanese to these guys. So I didn't know if that was legal or not. But anyway, yep. I went past him and I, I said something from a a comic. Those, you know, those World War Two comics. There were, there were a lot of them around in those days. But anyway, yeah. I said, Banzai, as I went past, which is <laughs> what they used to yell out when they were charging out, out of their trenches in the, the comics. I said, yep. So this guy said, Japanese coach jumped back startled and then I came up to the first of the two Japanese guys who were surging away and I went past and I said sayonara to the skies and so I didn't know Japanese but that's goodbye and then uh, then I came up to the, the guy who's leading and, and he he was panting and grunting and I just sort of surged past him and the, it was just a grind. The last 800 was just a solo grind. I was going clack, 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 clack around this stadium. There were four and a half thousand people in the stadium yelling me on. And uh, I, uh, I actually won the race. I bet all the New Zealanders. Wow. Bet, bet the Japanese. The, the nearest Japanese was nearly five seconds behind me and the second one was seven yep. seconds behind. And... On a windy night in, in Wellington on that track, I ran, uh, didn't run as fast as in Auckland. Uh, I ran seven seconds slow. I ran 8.13 flat. But yeah. uh, but it was enough to beat the Pacific Conference Games Japanese representatives by oh. five and seven seconds respectively. Oh, fantastic. And one actually who was seven seconds behind me, he got the bronze medal in the Pacific Conference Games in the 5,000 metres. And I wasn't allowed to run the 5,000. So I was really quite annoyed with the New Zealand selectors for not being given the chance because in the conditions at the time, I thought I could have done something and I probably would have because, uh, I don't know. Yeah. You know, if there are a few thousand people yelling for you, what do you do? You you sort of put on a show, don't you? So uh, that's the sort of running I, I... I was turned on by you, and yep. you just had to watch the Olympics to see uh, performers do that. You know, like Rod Dixon could put on a show. Um, yep. John Walker certainly could put on a show, you know. 
the cracks could put on the show, to just depending, very dependent on the crowd and who is there and the energy of the crowd. And when you realise that the energy of a crowd, you can access for yourself uh, when you're, you're racing hard. Um, that's something... Um, some, some athletes can run hard in time trials and yep. by themselves, no one watching and do very well and be in fantastic shape, but have little niggling self-doubts. Um, other athletes, I think, uh, need something uh, more than that to run their best. That They need to yep. be sort of taken to the edge of uh, extreme nervousness or excitement before they can really dig down deep. And because I never used to, in those days, train hard with things like VO2 max intervals and all the things I've learned about long since, yep. my races were, I wonder if I can run this hard. And I always could because I had so much aerobic background that I could run really well down to 3,000 and even do a sub-60 second last lap just of aerobic running, long runs and, uh, you know, um, but the speed was always there. Um, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm like that. I I definitely go better when I've got a crowd, and um, yeah, it just seems to get more out of me. Um, but yeah, no, like I, I um, that was like a fantastic summary of um, yeah, some really amazing races, Keith. Um, around that time um in that era um in auckland and new zealand running um how, how much were you influenced by arthur lydiard and uh and his principles um and and if you were to describe those those principles um arthur lydiard's principles in just sort of three simple paragraphs what what, what would they be lots of running at gentle aerobic paces for as long as you can. Yep. Totally avoid work above the anaerobic threshold or where you start to huff and puff for as many years as you can. Develop a huge aerobic foundation and then you've built the prerequisites for a super athlete. <laughs> so we, we used to totally believe because it was all around us, that it was possible to very much improve your oxygen uptake significantly. Although uh, exercise physiologists since those days have come out in, in their books and, and stated things like Timothy Noakes, Tim Noakes, the, he's a very good writer. Um, he said it wasn't possible to increase your oxygen uptake by more than 15%, no matter how you trained. But we had case after case after case of, of men like um, Johnny Robinson, who started off running enthusiastically when he was a teenager. Uh, at the age of 16, I don't believe Johnny Robinson could break five minutes for the mile. So he wasn't the most talented guy going around. But what he had was a lot of patience and tenacity which is all Arthur Liddy had wanted from an athlete, someone who'd turn up and do the work. So Johnny Robinson trained and did the work and uh, eventually at the age of 35, he PR'd in the marathon 
made the Commonwealth Games and he did two hours 15 and then wow. he represented New Zealand in orienteering after that, yep. well into his 40s and 50s. Huh. Still got a good head of hair on him now and uh, <laughs> well into his 80s now. But uh, guys like that, uh, they're all around the place and uh, the uh, there were so many masters athletes or veteran athletes well over 40 who could break two hours 20 for the marathon, you know, and uh, you had guys like Jack Foster running who was two hours 11 silver medal in the Commonwealth Games, you know, growing up. And when you see that all it is is these guys you, you can keep up with on the long Sunday run uh, and, and you realise that some of them are, you know, being very competitive at, at world level and world cross country or on the track, then you sort of think, well, maybe I can do that as well. And so that was the running culture growing up in New Zealand. And then uh, because of Arthur Lydiard, I mean, Arthur Lydiard was totally um, whatever Arthur said was just like, might as well have been in the Bible, you know. Yeah. If he said you, you needed to do this, you did that because he... Um, I was speaking with my old coach Barry the other day on on, on my own uh, sort of interview platform. Yeah, and he he was he was saying that the thing with Arthur was he t he spoke with total authority, like like he he had a handle on everything he spoke about. To me, I think he was almost Spengali, like a um, he could speak stuff into you. <laughs> um, Lorraine Mollett was saying how he, he looked, looked at her with his piercing eyes and he had a big hook nose, which is like an eagle's beak. And he just looked in the eyes and said, you can meddle in this Olympics, Lorraine. Um, this is before Barcelona. And she'd been a, uh, lucky to get selected in one way, but she, she had such a pedigree of running under the extended uh, instruction of Arthur Liddy over many years that... Uh, he had total faith in her ability to get a medal. And she'd had little doubts, but after Arthur looked at her in the eyes uh, and told her that she could medal or get a medal or go for it, it gave her permission to um, see what she could do. So this is what Arthur Lydia was like in New Zealand. Um, he was like a, the match that lights the, um, the thundercracker, you know, like he, he just... He just Tell people they could do stuff. He's super encourager. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, that's that's awesome. Um, it's just so interesting hearing all these stories. Um, yeah, um, because yeah, we just I I think growing up in the modern day, like obviously we don't have Arthur Lydiard with us anymore. So it's so so great to hear it um, from you, like just a personal experience. Um, the next thing, yeah, I wanted to hear your thoughts on were how much do you feel running success is based on training and how much do you feel like it's based on talent? And uh, talent, well, very few talented runners make it to the top. I mean, if you talk about super talented kids, schoolboy talents, people who are absolutely awesome, very, very few of them make it to the top. The ones who actually do seem to make it right to the top of the pole, sometimes, in my in my opinion, uh, 
which might not be reliable, but some people would say it's not. <laughs> but anyway, my opinion is uh, if you're quite talented and, and got a bit of ability, but you want to apply yourself as much as you can, following the correct principles of building up your aerobic base to the largest degree you can with steady running, it's an awful lot of work for a number of years and de depending on how your particular muscle fibre type responds and your physiology responds, that dictates your psychology because if you're training correctly, you, you will have built-in doubts as to whether you can perform up to your best on a certain day. And with, with the platform of training that's built into the Lydiate system, you always know that you will be able to race at your personal best on a given day that you've prepared for. So uh, I've seen so many athletes get to represent Australia or New Zealand who started off at a level which I thought was not much different from where I was at um, and, and come right through the ranks just with training and eventually get to be world-class and then make Olympics. Um, two guys I'm thinking of uh, who has juniors were finished uh, about a lap behind me in the National Junior 5,000 metres. They were well over 15 minutes um, for 5,000 metres. Uh, two of them later made the 84 Olympic marathon team one ran two hours 10 and bits and another one ran two hours 11 wow. for the marathon. Um, but as juniors, uh, you know, um, compared to a, a lot of us, um, we had pr probably more natural ability um, and able to run away from them on the track because they hadn't yet developed their aerobic base to the level they did just and they had very encouraging coaches and situations where they could stick with their training for several years on end and, and reap the benefits. So um, I'd say talent at the most 15%, 20%. Yeah. Uh, the, the thing is, had said, uh, any normal healthy male is capable with the right training of getting under two and a half hours for the marathon. And uh, now that to athletes these days seems preposterous because no one does the training anymore that, that we used to do back then, or very few. The only guys I, I, I think are doing the training correctly are uh, Nick Badeau's squad, who basically do follow the, the Lydia principles or the modified principles that are jelly developed from the Lydia principles for John Walker, uh, they really do know what they're doing and how to apply that because their results speak for themselves. So um, uh, talent, yeah, I mean, you're not going to, you're not going to, you're not going to make an Olympic final or even have a chance of a medal unless you've got, yeah, you know, yeah, really top talent. But to to make it to an international level. Uh, you don't need outstanding physical talent. You just got to have a big heart and a voracious appetite for lots of training and a 
supported running culture, which is what we had in New Zealand. We, we were, it was a whole lifestyle within itself. You could have a whole life lifestyle, a whole social life within the running scene. Um, you know, births, marriages, deaths, all that sort of stuff within the running enclave. Um, it was just a total scene and um, very fun times to be involved in. Uh, that's awesome. So, Keith, um, moving on from that, I read this great article um, that um, you did with Athletics Illustrated, um, and I realised how much you know about um, some historic running coaches in the sport. Um, do you mind divulging how the approaches of coaches like Gordon Peary and Waldemar Gershler Igloy and Lassie Veron's coach Rolf Hakola differ, and some of the take takeaways from all of those those coaches. Yeah, well, that's a very good question, Dane. Um, yeah, guys like uh, particularly Veron's coach Rolf Hakola. I don't know much about him. I don't think anyone does. Um, uh, Veron grew up in rural Finland in a little village called Merskla, and he was the village policeman. Um, and obviously not too much crime occurred around there because he, he was able to train a lot in the forest, uh, beautiful training grounds apparently. Now, I've never been to Finland and I've never been to Merskla, but I've been interested in, in what his coach, Rolf Haikola, came up with. So. Before heart rate monitors were around, he was experimenting with heart rates and uh, he had a trained nurse, as opposed to an untrained nurse, um, taking Viren's pulse on the forest trails after every uh, one of his, you know, when he came to do his anaerobic work or early anaerobic work, he'd do things like 20 times 200 metres on smooth forest trails, you know, and uh, and he had to meet certain target times and uh, they, they measured the pulse after each by just taking it off the carotid artery on the, on the throat. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so he's a meticulous record keeper and uh, he had a way of analysing uh, gait and things like that. And he must have been influenced at one stage by Mihaly Igloy, the great Hungarian coach who managed to get whole swags of um, Hungarians in, um, into fabulous shape in the 1950s, um, including Laszlo Tabori, who I think he ran a 356 or 357 mile in the end, but uh, he, he was a world-class runner. But Igloy um, had ways of getting the volume into his athletes because they, they were under a communist regime for a while there. So um, they couldn't train in forests and things um, in Hungary and, and go to the, the bush because they might escape, you see. So they had to do a lot of their training. And the same with Zatopek, you know, within uh, the uh, enclosures of a, a park and a track. So they developed ways of getting the sheer volume in and to avoid boredom. They, like Zatopek, he did legendary things like 40 times 400, and people think that he did them mighty fast, but uh, from my reading, um, he, he did them 
a 400 fast would be 75 seconds, which is a one quarter of a five minute mile, which, you know, um, he could probably hold very close to that for a full marathon. So he's just doing little yep. high aerobic or anaerobic threshold almost surges, but just backing off. So they got creative with how they would get this conditioning in in a communist regime because they couldn't go for long steady runs in the forest because uh, they is uh, you're taking your life in your own hands. Yeah. And so Igloy Igloy was fascinating because he had ways of changing pace and and, and technique and and uh, doing stride outs and and a real he developed a real um, understanding of uh, the mechanics of running. And uh, Waldemar Gershler, I get a bit confused sometimes. There was Gershler, uh, one was the medical doctor, one was the, the coach. Harbig, Harb, Rudolf Harbig, before the war, um, he was running 1 minute 46.6 seconds on a cinders track for 800 metres. And his coach... Um, was um, Gershler, yeah, and his physiologist or medical doctor was a guy called Rondell. And now Rondell had worked out this theory about the heart, about how you you get it to beat to its absolute maximum, and then you give it a re recovery period um, where you start running hard again when your pulse comes down to 120. So. These days, it's been more individualised um, to the athletes. So, um, anyway, they were experimenting with various heart rates in the 40s and the 30s and, and all that. And what we do know is that Harbig, the 800 meter, 400 meter runner, was doing long runs in the forest called restoration runs. Restoration runs went as long as 90 minutes, one and a half hours, very, very, very slow jogging. And this is the ideal intensity uh, we've found since in, in uh, what I've read of the research anyway, uh, to stimulate uh, capillarization very deep into the slow twitch muscle fibers. But it's also ideal to develop mitochondrial density into those slow twitch fibers. And uh, this, in turn, this huge development of capillaries very deep into working muscle beds um, serves to increase your ability to exercise anaerobically when it comes time to do that before your peak because it lays a, uh, in plumbing terms, like a huge drainage capacity into the muscle bed. So as soon as acid is produced from um, very high intensity exercise and acid starts to flood the, the working muscles, and this is the bear jumping on your back at, at the <laughs> 250 meter mark for 400. Um, as soon as that starts to occur, you're in trouble unless you can clear that acid away. And so all the training that Arthur Lydiard's guys used to do, like Peter Snell, you know, the, the long runs, they were developing this massive capillary um, drainage bed, for want of a better term, through the working muscle and also the heart. The heart, the heart would develop 
massive ability to exercise because it, basically the heart is a slow twitch muscle fibre, uh, a different structure of muscle fibre to skeletal muscles, but the cardiac muscles are designed to expand and contract uh, like spandex, you know, the pulse. So um, aerobic running... Um, will develop um, this magnificent capillary network, which will help with the recovery from anaerobic work by flushing the acids straight back through the venous system to the portal vein of the liver from where uh, they get uh, rebadged and, and remade back into glucose and, and this fantastic uh, system in the body, um, which is incredibly efficient at reconstructing molecules of, say, lactate from, um, from um, substrates um, and then delivering it to where it's needed. So there's the, 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 these systems that were understood intuitively by guys like Rindell and Gershler in the 1930s and uh, like I say, Harbig, who ran 46 flat, I think, for a world 400 meter record, a German, um, who was later killed on the Western Front, unfortunately, as a soldier. Um, he, he was running long restoration runs in the forest under the coaching of Rindell. And um, so these principles were very much appreciated by guys like Rolf Heikola, who utilized a bit of serity, a bit of lydiate, a bit of eggloy in the peaking process for Lassie Berin. So um, he, he could see as they were coming into, say, finals of the Olympics, that uh, Lassie was running a bit sort of down at heel or just sitting down on the track a bit. So he'd take him away and they'd do a session of very specific work on just you know, springing off the, off the toes. Um, um, a very dynamic, involved coach, uh, from what I've read, who could just fix things up at the very last minute, just before the massive peak, you know. So these guys really had a handle on it, and they must have been very deep thinkers. But they pop up from history. Um, and, and what I'm saying is uh, we think we know it all now, but we really don't because you, um, you just go back in history a bit and you find some of these great coaches who were able to get fantastic results um, years ago um, intuitively. So they had a, an, an understanding of how to do it, but uh, they didn't have the science back then at all. But we're in a good position now um, to look back and... Uh, not think we know it all, but just admire what guys like Lydiard and Serity and these early pioneers did because what they managed to get athletes to do back then was remarkable. And, and you know, um, it's, it's an absolute fact, intro, incontrovertible fact that Peter Snell, the 800-metre runner, he still got the... New Zealand 800 meter record, which was the world record, 
when he set it in 1962. February the 7th, 1962, he ran 1 minute 44.3 seconds on a beautiful grass track in Lancaster Park in Christchurch, Canterbury. Uh, he did that seven weeks and six days after he'd completed the Yawaraka Marathon, his first and only marathon, in which he was with the leaders at the 22-mile mark and they were on a 2.23 pace, but he got <laughs> glycogen depleted. But he was he was going for it. Yeah. Uh, he had to sit on the side of the road for a few minutes, got up and sort of walked and jogged to the finish, and he did 2 hours 41. But seven <laughs> weeks and six days later... He was running one minute forty four point three for an eight hundred meters. Wow. So if you if you read about a guy these days in interclub, like a guy and not an old guy, just a young guy who uh, five years earlier had been running one fifty nine point six for eight hundred uh, um, as a schoolboy, which is not a remarkable time, it's, but uh, it was enough for him to win an Auckland schoolboys championship on grass. Five years from then, later, he was an emergent Olympic champion in 145.6 on cinders. Um, so, so, yeah, so I've gone on a circular route there. Uh, now, the original question was about Gordon Perry and those sort of guys. Yeah. Well, certainly Gordon Perry was a character. <laughs> he, he trained under Gersler, I think. And he was um, very sort of driven by this um, very hard training with um, measuring the pulse and recoveries. And he had a few acolytes in New Zealand, and uh, but he, um, he he was very eccentric and uh, quite erratic as a character. I think I'm fair in saying that. And um, <laughs> he. he, he You'd see this guy um, really wiry, fit, and, and obviously a very fit man, um, sort of very rangy, um, running around the edge of the Auckland domain, berating and uh, abusing runners and their running styles, telling them they'd do better if they came and trained with him. Um, <laughs> really odd man. But anyway, he, he was um, probably... Um, Very misunderstood, I'd say, because um, but he didn't do himself any favours in New Zealand anyway, because we were all Lydiard followers, and he came in with the, these sort of um, interval training methods, which you know it's uh, there's nothing creative about it. You know, you can get the conditioning in for the as far as the heart and lungs is concerned, running around a cross country course as you are doing intervals on the track. You know. Um, but, uh, yeah, Gordon Perry was, uh, oh, I think he was number two in the world, over 5,000 in his day. Um, Olympic silver medal. Uh, I think he cracked the four-minute mile, but he wasn't super quick or anything. Um, uh, but he was able to run a sub-four-minute mile in the 50s uh, with a very limited uh, speed base but just sheer hard work. So um, there are guys around who, who can do that, you know, um, tolerate massive acidosis um, just through grinding sort of training. But it's not the way to build 
a squad of athletes. You need to have something that most people can survive. And, um, but um, if you go back in history, um, you do learn a lot um, seeing how they, they, these early guys managed to balance their training and, and uh, some were very analytical and scientific in what they did, just steadily raising their capacity. And I was talking on Facebook pages recently with guys about a guy who Barry McGee said that Arthur Liddy thought was the greatest athlete he'd ever seen, a guy called Doug Harris, uh, who Doug Harris uh, trained by himself in a place called Waiuru, the army base in the central North Island of New Zealand. Uh, it's a uh, cold and bleak place at the best of times. And in winter, it's absolutely desolate. But uh, the army base was where he trained. He asked to be transferred there because he was, uh, he'd been deafened by an artillery shot uh, early in the war. And uh, he asked to be posted as a paymaster to Waiuru. And so he, he was a good runner. He could run 47.2 for 440 yards, which was, I think he was the New Zealand champion or record holder at that time. And he could also run um, low 149s for 880 yards. And he was uh, he was running uh, by himself in Waiuru, often doing time trials over 1,200 metres on a track he made himself in three minutes, two, three minutes, three, times like that. Wow. Well before the, well before the four-minute mile. And he uh, was spiked in the heat of the 800 metres at the London Olympic Games in 1948, um, which just uh, ended his athletic career, really. But he, he uh, the guy who... Um, won his heat and uh, finished up with the gold medal, I think. And um, he, he could have been running, um, well, Arthur Liddy had said he could have been the first man to break the four-minute mile. But he, he was a self-trained guy, a, a Kiwi. Um, but he was running, you know, like if you have a middle-distance runner these days, he's running 47.2 for 440 yards or a little bit quicker again for 400, being a shorter distance. Uh, that's quite an athlete, and uh, running 149.2 on a, a long track on grass, uh, he he tied the then world record of Sydney Wooderson for 880 yards, but the world 800-metre record being shorter, that was Rudolf Harvick, 146.6, but still, it's very good running. Um, yeah, so we, we get these guys who sort of pop up in history who are very talented, train themselves, did whatever they did at their level of understanding. Um, but what they didn't have is the uh, the aerobic base. So they did the most that they possibly could, balancing an essentially anaerobic program. So we know now so much more about developing the aerobic base as a means of, like a, an endurance runner needs to run many miles at aerobic speeds to develop the ability to metabolize fats for energy as opposed to glucose or glycogen. 
stave off glycogen depletion, which is why everyone runs out of energy at the two-hour mark. Uh, totally different to a middle-distance runner who has to get that aerobic basing so that they can then uh, cope with the massive amounts of acid that they'll produce when they come to their peaking process. So two different purposes for exactly the same training. So uh, Lydia's athletes, whether they're middle-distance specialists or long-distance specialists for their base, all ran together, uh, their aerobic miles. And uh, what I found extraordinary was discovering that Peter Snell had won the Auckland 10-kilometre cross-country title over a very, very hilly course at Cornwall Park, uh, beating uh, Bill Bailey and Barry McGee and um, some really tough cookies. Well, um, four weeks before he went to the national championships, which he won again by 40 seconds. So he, had, he outkicked the great Bill Bailey, who was uh, a sub four minute miler, as well as being a national champion at every distance from 888 yards to six miles. Well, wow. like we're talking big range. Um, he outkicked him in the cross country, and Bill Bailey was around that time was the world record holder for 30,000 metres on the track and 20,000 metres in the one hour. So Snell was able to outkick this guy at the end of a cross country and then win the national title four weeks later by 40 seconds from some of the toughest cookies going around. And this was oh, about maybe five months, six months after he'd broken the world 800 metres and um, 880 yards and mile records in in um, Wanganui and then Christchurch. And um, so this is what aerobic training did for Peter Snell. Um, he was a burly sort of guy, um, quite solid for a, a runner, um, very powerful, but able to run with the best distance runners in New Zealand and beat them at national level and cross country, you know within a few months of breaking world records for 800 metres. So um, so would your your thoughts be that the building that huge aerobic endurance base uh, first um, make, like obviously you get all those aerobic and uh, aerobic adaptations um, over time. Um, and then it also probably helps strengthen the legs so that you're, you're, you're less likely to get injured. Um, would that be the case? And then, like, when when do you sort of add in sort of some short sprints or hill bounds or fartleks um, to sort of liven up that steady training? And uh, yeah, well, yeah. it was built into the program as a constant. Like once a week, you might go and do a fartlek. Yeah, and a, a Lydiard fartlek was uh, quite fun. You you go warm up and. Um, Quite often you'd put your spikes on, your, your uh, cross-country spikes or your track spikes on and you'd, you'd do um, bursts of faster running and then natural um, recovery running between bursts. So you would get leg turnover during the winter because basically winter, the winter program is a time of massive aerobic build-up because any racing you're doing, we used to regard winter racing as sort of like conditioning and the cross-country races as part of our conditioning. And uh, 
So the, the original linear training program was based on two 26-week cycles in a year. So the, the winter cycle and the summer cycle, 26 weeks each. Uh, four weeks of each of those cycles would be handed over to um, baby recovery, easy running from uh, you know, the, the season before just to get your physiology reset and totally recover your en energy systems and your psychology so you were ready to go again. So it had all these things built into it um, quite systematically. And then to build speed back in and power, there was a way of training without going flat out because um, I don't think Arthur Lydia knew any of this physiology per se when he, he, he worked it out. But he worked it out for sure. And uh, I've spent the last 30 years looking at what he did. Uh, <laughs> and I can't fault it. You know, like, you know, it's amazing. So there's a way of exercising your most powerful muscle fibre types. They're called the 2B fast twitch muscle fibre. It's a white muscle fibre loaded with creatine phosphate as a high energy source of energy production, very high energy output. Uh, it, it just um, reaches, max, reaches maximal power output of about between four to six seconds and then it tails off very rapidly. But it, the, uh, the acidosis in the system, and we don't, don't call it lactic acidosis anymore because that apparently is not the case, but the acid in the system doesn't start to get start build up until well after 10 seconds of high power output. So your, your um, alactic without acidosis, uh, high energy system, the creatine phosphate, is uh, basically a self-topping battery of energy. So if you just walk around for a minute or two, you will recover your creatine phosphate stores within those very high power muscle fibers types to about 90%. Um, if you spend another five minutes recovering, it'll get up nearer 100%. So this is why a 100-meter sprinter, for instance, who for the first 60 meters of his race will be totally type 2B dominant, why he can fire out there and then just maintain top speed with good technique and muscle strength through the finish, put his arms up and... Um, rip his shirt off and flex his <laughs> biceps uh, and dance around the track for the rest of the 300 metres till he gets to the start line again or the finish line yeah. um, while well, he can recover. But the 400 metre runner, he, he goes flat out and he starts to go into acidosis after about somewhere along the back straight between 150 and 200. He's starting to get into the acid realms as they build up in his body. And by the time he comes into the straight, he or she, um, I'll take it this is a gender-neutral um, podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Good. Okay. Uh, he or she come into the straight. Um, but at the finish line, uh, there's no dancing around. You'll be lucky if you have to sort of peel them off the track, pull them up off the track, because they, they're gone. They're totally full of acid. Um that's the difference between the muscle fiber types. So that's what's been happening there is there's been a sort of like a handover in 
in the energy systems from the type 2B super powerful muscle fiber types that we all have to some degree or other and can be trained. There's a, a handover in the metabolism to the second order uh, muscle fibers which produce lactate, which is not the enemy. Uh, acidosis is the enemy. Um, but lactate these days is seen as a very high energy substrate um, broken down from glucose um, in the in the cell um, very rapidly and the more uh, more high energy output you require in fast running you your type 2a muscle fiber types so the second fastest fast switch fibers these ones can also be trained to have aerobic characteristics by high volumes of aerobic work and they also develop mitochondria in them to a significant degree with that type of training which we can get into another time but anyway yeah so this is handover from very high power to less power uh, running off lactate producing tons of acid all the while and then and then collapsing because of all the acidosis which stops the signals from your brain actually reaching the, the neuromuscular junction. So uh, there's something about a whole lot of hydrogen protons floating around a neuromuscular junction, which stops all ability to transmit whatever recruitment signal you send down the neuromotor drives from the brain. It just doesn't happen. You know, you, know, you could be trying for all you're worth to move your limbs and nothing's happening when you're in under acidosis. So um, what we find though is um, the ability to clear this acid out of the system in an anaerobic athlete. Um, if that athlete has been prepared to put in the hours of training, it doesn't have to be hard training, it's quite enjoyable training, just chatty chatty training. Um, it's all aerobic and it's developing these um, networks which will enable rapid recovery between, say, um, races and um, hard training sessions. So you, this is why uh, all energy systems are important, all intensities are important, and they all come into play in different stages of the training. So the way we used to... Um, train the 2B fibers um, is through what I call the back door, the secret back door of, of training, which very few people these days seem to understand. Um, and that is you, you can train the type 2B muscle fibers without running fast. And the way to do that is a thing called the size principle where your brain will selectively recruit muscle fibers according to how much uh, near maximal work is required. So if you say pick up a cup of coffee, your brain will say pick that coffee up, uh, tell your muscles to do that and that'll be fine. Now let's make that cup of coffee um, a 25 kilo dumbbell. Now your brain's directing your type 2A muscle fiber types. So a few of them have to be recruited now because your slow twitch fibers don't quite have the force production required to do that. Um, and 
then let's say you're asked to lift 100 kilos off the floor in what we call a deadlift. Now your brain is being directed to recruit your higher, well, depending on how strong you are, <laughs> your highest order power fibers, the 2B. So this is called the size principle of muscle fiber recruitment. So it goes in order of um, low force, medium force, very high force. Your most massive, powerful muscle fiber types are the 2B. They don't even get out of bed. They're not even recruited until you're lifting 87% of your maximal that you can possibly lift for whatever that lift is. So let's say in a lift, like maybe a bench press, if you're a strong guy, girl, and you can bench press 100 kilograms, which is a significant force production, you're not even stimulating one type 2B muscle fiber type or the creatine phosphate system, which drives that the high, high, high energy system until you're lifting 87 kilos. It's not even getting recruited. So, but the way to sort of cheat the system is um, with the back door. And that is um, you can train the fast twitch fibers by running slowly until they're totally exhausted a long way. And uh, but muscles run out of glycogen uh, they have to run off something, so they're forced to sort of um, adapt if you do these long runs. And they get a training effect from long running, which ends up being deep capillarization and, um, with, um, and also uh, mitochondria can form in even these uh, most powerful of fibers, muscle fiber types. So um, you have this sort of capacity to exercise them that way. And there's another way to stimulate the back door. And that is just what Arthur Lydia did with this hill springing. So hill springing is done, can be done quite slowly. It's by no means a sprint interval or anything like that. But he had a way of just bounding up hills and just bounding. So that's a sudden stretch exercise which invokes the type 2B uh, or facilitates those massive uh, myelinated pathways back to the, the sensory motor cortex of the brain and the frontal lobe. Um, it excites those pathways and that super excitation of those pathways has a training effect on your ability to recruit those fibers when it time comes. So it's a way of keeping um, those pathways those neuromuscular pathways excited and trained um, without possibly going into injuring the same muscle fibers by going ballistic with your efforts. So um, yeah. hill, hill swimming does that by exciting the, the pathways, the neuromuscular pathways. Um, very effective to um, get an athlete up to top speed and uh, Pekka Vasala, the great 1500 meter runner who, who won the 1972 Olympic 1500. He, he did uh, hill exercises well into his peaking program um, two or three times a week, mixed in with his um, anaerobic work. So uh, anaerobic work um, 
Well, you probably have to read my little yeah. <laughs> book to understand what I'm talking about, but I, I probably don't have the time here to talk about yep. it. But we can certainly talk about it in any future time if you want to. Yeah, well, I think you've um, been like so generous with um, your time and you can tell how well read you are, Keith, um, and how much... Um, yeah, it looks like you haven't stopped reading since you first picked up that Peter Snell book. Um, when, oh, when I'm still reading that. Yeah. <laughs> I summarised, actually, I summarised his um, program before he broke those world records, you know, and uh, it was quite extraordinary because uh, I still get stuff out of these old, old books just by looking at them and thinking, well, what the devil was he doing? Now, that was... That was 58 years ago, a lifetime ago, more than most people's lifetime ago. Um, 58 years ago, this guy was capable of doing these times. And I thought, well, what was he actually doing? Because this was like exercise physiology uh, wasn't a science as yet. and um, But they just had this understanding of of the simplicity, there's an underlying simplicity behind all, all, all of these successes, which is basically in a nutshell, you, you build your aerobic base with lots of gentle, easy training. And um, yeah, and, and in that little book, I, I describe how various heart rate training zones have been proven and that are all in the lower intensity. None of them are in the anaerobic zones. You've got things like um, the very lower low intensity jogging, for instance. Now, what does that do? That builds up, actually builds up your ability of your cardiac muscle to uh, expand and contract the most, because your heart, the right atrium or, or the left atrium of your of your heart, can't fill fully at high heart rates. Or when you're pounding along at a heart rate, let's say like it out of the air, 160, 170, like that, you're thumping along. Um, the average to good runner will be thumping along um, at that rate, uh, possibly um, well into their anaerobic threshold zones by then, depending on the athlete. But um, what's happening there is the heart isn't fully filling in, in the left atrium, which is the filling chamber of the heart, because it's beating too quickly to fill, and therefore it can't fill the left ventricle, which is the pumping chamber of the heart, to pump out to the body. So you're getting a partial filling and a partial pumping. What you need is a lower heart rate and a full filling of the ventricle. So that, that spandex bag, which is the pumping chamber, expands as much as it can, and that, that is called the Frank Starling mechanism. That's a, a mechanism where the myocytes or the, the muscle cells um, have a stretch reflex and they, the overlapping filaments of the muscle fibers had to be stretched the most before they can contract the most. You get it? So they have to be challenged to, yep. to uh, grow in size and, and force production. And, and what we've found is the um, most reliable training zone to increase the measurable size of your left ventricle. There was a big study done by a lady physiologist called Alicia Baerbalk 
Now, I didn't, I didn't know about her study until just this year um, when I was a physiologist in, Arizona, uh, in Colorado called uh, Alan Cousins. He's an Aussie. He, he helps triathletes and people uh, break through their limitations in, in um, oxygen uptake by taking them a while away from all their former programs, which were all about VO2 max anaerobic threshold work and all that. He just cuts it all out, just goes aerobic. Uh, and these are the ideal intensities to develop this stretch reflex and this Frank Starling mechanism. And uh, this lady, Burbock, she used an, what's called an echocardiogram to monitor the actual or measure the actual cubic centimetres or the volume of the left ventricle uh, objectively and found uh, a more or less linear correlation between hours of regular aerobic training per week and the size of the ventricle. So, uh, and Alan Cousins says that he could, could see no end in sight. Um, you know, uh, you know, let's say subject to injury or time off where it wouldn't keep on improving in, in volume. And a capacity, so um, that's intriguing, and that's done by aerobic running. It's not done by what everyone thinks it's done by, you know. And um, people love to talk about these um, tempo runs, you know, where you're running along at, uh, yeah, you're huffing and puffing. But you've just crossed over from being aerobic, totally aerobic, to anaerobic. You just cross the cross the barrier and. Uh, it has a purpose later on when you've fully developed your aerobic capacity as much as you can in the time you've got to get ready for racing because you do have to delve into those intensities to race, obviously. Yeah. But um, I know from personal experience that um, you don't actually have to train those intensities to be able to race at them because I very rarely did in my running because um, I just didn't. Um, yeah. But well, I could race with the best and right down to 3,000 metres. Found it a bit harder at 1,500 um, because I wasn't working at those much higher intensities. So your muscles, well, you, you train what you train, and if it's not trained, it's not ready to go and you can't use it. So, um, yeah. All right? Yeah, no, that's fantastic, Keith. Um, uh, if Because if, um, a lot of listeners will listen to, to this um podcast and they'll probably be interested to find out more um about you where where can they go to find out more about your books and um yeah more more just general information um about you okay well i do have a website up called drkeith.com.au i think it is um d-r-k-e-i-t-h.com.au uh, that's my website um, with various blogs and things on it. Uh, they can also order books off Amazon. Uh, I'm rewriting Healthy Intelligent Training at present. I've rewritten Champions Are Everywhere. That's the one we're talking about, the little one, the 120-page yep. one. And that's more or less a, a practical summary of Healthy Intelligent Training based on all the questions I was getting after I wrote that, that, that bigger one. And uh, 
physiology hasn't changed um, since I wrote healthy intelligent training, but our understanding understandings of some of the fine tuning of physiology has changed somewhat. So what was generally held when I wrote that first book uh, about lactic acid, which is, you know, everyone's talking about lactic acid, um, that no longer holds apparently. So, um, and physiologists are having various academic arguments and table thumping and all that in the interim, but all that has changed in terms of the uh, fine science, but it doesn't change how we train one single little bit. So uh, I've sort of gone into the edges of that in the smaller book, Champions Are Everywhere, um, the schedules, and I've um, put in the schedules we know work, it's just sample schedules, because people were understanding the principles but not able to place them into a, a weekly framework of training. So uh, basically I've sort of laid out what we know works with kids um, my co-coach, fellow coach, John John Marr, runs a program with Marsland College in Melbourne, which has for years been a very successful middle distance and distance running school. And uh, they regularly beat the, the grammar schools uh, with their program, and John isn't even paid to coach them because these, these other schools uh, teams um, have paid professional athletic coaches to coach their squads. And uh, so they're almost uh, at that level where they're professional. But we offer um, amateur base and um, with a basically an adapted Lydia program for kids, uh, able to trounce these guys in teams competition quite <laughs> regularly over cross-country. And I think you can verify from your own school days. Yeah. John's squads running the Lydiate Way were very effective. Oh, they were a force. Um, yeah, I remember Matt Colo, Steve Kelly. Um, yeah, there was, they were just renowned as, um, yeah. Um, yeah, they were all good. Yeah, they were all good. And, and some of them who weren't so good early on became good. Like yep. uh, one of our guys, uh, he wasn't, well, John says he wasn't, outstanding in any way shape or form until he was about 17 and then he he, he ran uh, a high 151s 800 uh, off a basic a cross-country based program you know mileage long runs and um, he got down to 151.9 for 800 so that was very good um, and then we got you had guys like Matthew Collo who could run well I think he was running three minutes 52 for a 1500 when he was 16. Yep. And there was another kid after him uh, who ran faster again and won the world schoolboys cross country title individually. Um, but he's since given up the sport, unfortunately. Um, yeah, but this is all cross country running and aerobic running. And so the schedules, I basically shared the schedules, the, the, the typical training week, week by week as we go through the phases, um, and as you know, schoolboy competition, they mix everything up in the season. You don't have a defined, a properly defined season where you, um, where you say running a summer track program and then a winter cross country. It's all mixed up. So 
Um, you have to train athletes to be able to get into an air peak shape within a few weeks, but that's done by just primarily an undercurrent of mostly aerobic running with a little bit of work, small but pivotal, I call it, a little bit of work um, uh, at higher intensities. And that's more or less what the what's now called the Australian system is. It's they, once or twice a week they have a, a higher intensity day where they do a little bit of work at, at race paces or near, and then the rest is just strong aerobic work. And um, but the, the book the book goes into that in some detail and the physiology. If, if someone's a coach, they'll get something out of it. Um, if they're a total nerd, they might not. Um, <laughs> look, there are some parts of physiology I'm, I've been looking at for a year now, and I'm still not nowhere near understanding. Yeah. But what we're talking about is not important in terms of um, anything I've discussed, like how you train. What I'm, what I'm wanting to, from my own understanding, is understand, like the um, when when lactate gets uh, burnt up at the coalface um, in a in a working muscle cell, um, what happens? I, I, but I haven't found any sensible answers anywhere. Exercise physiology uh, professors are still arguing about this in the peer-reviewed journal. So there's a battle of the nerds going on, which doesn't <laughs> affect your daily training. It's never ever affected the Lydiate program. Um, but uh, just from my own curiosity, I'd like to understand that more before I start explaining it. Yeah. So I think it's a good idea to understand something before you explain it. So, um, and Keith, I'd be amiss to not mention um, your book, Staring Down the Beast, because um, uh, uh, I... I I think it's pretty amazing um, uh, in terms of um, that you've been you were you've diet been diagnosed with a terminal sort of brain tumor, but um, and and the prognosis for that um, uh, wasn't favourable. Um, do you mind just sharing a little bit about um, about that journey as we round up the chat? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, well, I. Uh, Right from the start, um, I, I was very surprised actually to be diagnosed with a, a brain tumour. Uh, there's no history of cancer whatsoever in my extended family on both sides, as far as I know, going back five generations. So I, I, I was diagnosed in 2007. Yeah, I'd started up my new chiropractic practice in Bendigo. We moved here from Swan Hill and I borrowed a ton of money to build this new, new clinic and huge borrowings and all that. Yeah. But I thought, oh, I'll just start another clinic and let's get going again. As you do when you've uh, been successful in practice. And I thought, oh, yeah, we'll get this baby going. Yeah. But nothing happened because you've got to um, have a very high energy state about you when you're in a health practice. Yeah, like you'll know because you're a physiotherapist. You, you've got to be on top of your own game in every way before you can share that healing energy, for want of a better term, with your clients or energy. Uh, it's all about energy. Um, and my get up and go, it got up and gone. 
And I, was, <laughs> and I was very tired. Yep. This is in the winter of nine, uh, 2007. Very tired every night. Get home at, as soon as I could uh, in the dark. Six o'clock, it was already dark. Just tired. Sleep till, you know, the sun came up and um, that was it. It was my daily life. My first few weeks in this new practice that we um, built in, in uh, Bendigo. And then... Um, Really, I wasn't seeing any clients, even though I'd done a ton of marketing. Uh, nothing was happening like it had previously. So I was arguably under a lot of uh, financial pressure or just pressure full stop. And then uh, one night I was in my clinic and the day, day before I'd seen seven new clients, which is a, a fair number, and I'd taken seven sets of spinal x-rays. And so that was a a promising start to my first good day in practice. So I was busy typing up reports for each x-ray. And um, then I heard a, like a shotgun blast inside my head, if you can picture it. Yeah. And everything went black, like just like um, with the old black and white TV screens. Um, if you pulled the plug out from the wall, it would, the black screen would disappear down to a little white pinpoint in the middle of the screen. It was a sensation just like that, but the sound of a shotgun inside my head. And then uh, I woke up. I found myself on the floor in my clinic um, with the feeling of warm urine in my pants uh, being attended to by a paramedic Jeez. hovering over me. And then I became aware of uh, several female voices on the other side of the room and I've become aware of my wife, uh, my receptionist and uh, a lady chiropractor friend of ours who's a chiropractic neurologist. Um, she's a neurologist as well as a chiropractor. They were all in the room there. Um, apparently what had happened, I'd had a massive um, seizure and I went into full extension unconscious straight back from where I was standing up at uh, my upright sort of um, computer position, straight back over the chiropractic bench uh, at, at maximum speed and power, <laughs> flipped over the back of that and I must have landed, it flipped me sideways on like 90 degrees round it and my receptionist who'd only come in there to... Um, pick up something from the office after hours, because this was after six. She came in the store and she, all she could hear when she came in through the door and she apparently yelled out was, oh. that's what she heard. Yeah. And um, that was me having seizures on yep. the floor. Yep. And she yelled because she thought I might be playing a joke on her, which I often do, <laughs> or did, but I wasn't. And so she realised that... Uh, I was having a full-blown event. So um, that was my introduction to this brain tumour. And uh, when I came to, this guy started saying things like, um, do you know what day it is? Uh, who's the Prime Minister? Uh, questions like that, you know. And um, what's your wife's name? What's your name? 
what's the date of your birth, all these little sort of questions. Um, so at the time, the Prime Minister was John Howard, but I, I was aware enough of what was going on by the time I, I sort of became cognizant um, that uh, I'd collapsed, very vague otherwise, but apparently oh, this guy asked me a question. He said, how many children have you got? And at that stage, I had four. Yeah. And so I said four. But secretly, my wife was pregnant with the fifth, but no one was supposed to know that. So I was sharp enough to say four. And everyone, <laughs> all the girls, all the ladies on the side of the room started laughing their heads off because apparently a couple of minutes earlier, he asked me the same question. I said, children? What children? Oh, wow, well, yeah. So, yeah, I was far gone. So anyway, um, that was the start of, oh, I'd say about, um, really just started to really fully recover the last year or two. Uh, a mm -hmm. lot of ups and downs. I've had three neurosurgeries. Yep. I was told uh, within a week or two, um, I had an emergency surgery at St. Vincent's in Melbourne, and I was told by this um, very earnest, pleasant young um, neurosurgery registrar um, uh, called Paul. Uh, I remember his name, but um, I'll just call him Paul for now. Yep. Um, he, he came up to me um, the day after I'd had this surgery and said, um, Keith, um, well, the surgery was successful. We did manage to... Um, get a biopsy, um, do you want the good news first or the bad news? I said, well, shoot with the bad news first. And he said, well, it's terminal. And I said, well, what's the good news after that? He said, oh, it's treatable. <laughs> so, but I had enough wherewithal right from the start to say, well, stuff this, this, is, this isn't going to happen. So uh, I, uh, I thought, thought I'd combat it by just laughing all the time and enjoying yep. the process and just making making it all funny. Yep. So I, I, I just didn't want to worry about it or anyone else to worry about it. So I just, I, I remember saying to this guy, well, that's okay. We're all terminal, are we? Yeah. And uh, <laughs> he looked stunned and he said, oh, yes. Uh, I, <laughs> yes, yes, we are. Yes. <laughs> so he didn't know what to make of me. And then yeah. later on... Um, because, you know, everyone was trying to tell me that I only had, uh, at the most, three months to live, which just didn't sit well with me. Um, I never chose to believe it. So what I've managed to do um, mentally is um, kind of like in racing, um, and which is why I haven't been a distance runner. A big part of my... Um, We'll call it a journey, I suppose. But there have been a lot of downs, uh, a few ups, but uh, mostly, you know, getting slapped around the head. Um, yeah. But I never concentrate on those. I forget them as soon as they've happened. Um, lots of funny things have happened. Um, <laughs> uh, but uh, anyway, to cut a long story short, I was told I had less than three months to live 13 years ago. Jeez. <laughs> but I've enjoy, enjoyed my self ever since. I uh, I uh, never let a negative get inside my head. Uh, and 
right from the start, I decided to just to combat it by laughing. And uh, if I could, um, just stirring up specialists um, <laughs> who were trying to convince me of my demise. Like one was a classic I'll share here now because yeah. uh, she's a, a lady radiation oncologist and she was meeting with me because she'd seen the MRIs, which were absolutely woeful, uh, terrible stuff going on in there apparently. Um, and she was convinced that I was on the way out but she was trying to tell me, because I wasn't buying into it, you see. It's quite obvious. I just wasn't ready to accept what she was saying. She said, you do realise, Mr Livingston, that you've got a very, very aggressive condition here that could kill you. You do realise that, don't you? I said, well, I realise that's what you're saying, but I don't believe it. I just, I, as far as I'm concerned, I'm going to live a long time, if that's okay. <laughs> and she wrote a letter of complaint, which I wasn't supposed to see, to the surgeon, the neurosurgeon, saying that Mr. Livingston uh, is not aware of the severity of his condition. In other words, that was code for, um, like, I just wasn't accepting my diagnosis. But she wrote on, on the top of the file was not for, not for viewing by a patient. It was stamped on the top of the file. Yeah. And but it got filed anyway because that's what happens. And uh, I got the printout of that, not for me to see. So it was a, a secret letter to the surgeon saying I wasn't obeying instructions. <laughs> so uh, I thought that was hilarious. But anyway, I'm still <laughs> here and uh, not expected to be here. And uh, I, I just enjoy my, my time. And I thought, well, what shall I do? And I thought, well, what can I do that I know a bit better than most yeah. can do it. I came up with the conclusion that I knew a bit more about the Lydiard way of training and, and Lydiard and the physiology of it than most people. And that my initial thought was someone should write a book about the physiology of what Lydiard did. And then I came to the conclusion that who is that someone and that someone is me. <laughs> it's sort of like a an unraveling or a revelation that I was the person. So the person who thinks of it might be the person who's supposed to do it. So that's how that all started. But it gave me something to do, let's say, and uh, and concentrating on getting that book and, and especially indexing 276 pages with some pretty nerdy stuff in parts of it. Um, <laughs> well, that was very good for my brain and it was a form of therapy. And uh, so, um, but yes, I've, I'm probably the longest survived terminal brain tumour uh, patient. I don't identify with any of those terms, by the way. Yep. In Australia at present, as far as I know, but, you know, medical privacy laws and that, you never know. But there might be someone out there who's, who's lived longer, but I, I very much doubt whether there's anyone who's, who's um, enjoyed better health than me. Um, and so... Um, I eat very well on a basically a ketogenic diet, which is uh, very low in carbs, um, but um, high in all the good foods. All the, I can eat as much coloured vegetable. Um, or in the, yeah, I eat a very varied and uh, nutrient-rich diet. Um, I can have lots of fat with that, which, uh, by the way, is good for you 
We need we need cholesterol for our brain. Our brains are made of cholesterol. Our whole every cell in our body has uh, phospholipid uh, membranes comprised of cholesterol. So uh, I've gone right into all the nutrition <laughs> of what I've done and yeah. I've analysed all that and I, I uh, sort of mandated my own recovery um, without drugs. Uh, but I have had three surgeries. Um, and at present I've been told by this neuropsychiatrist, there's a lady neuropsychiatrist who'd seen my MRIs and, and seen very objectively the... MRI radiologists had said uh, I'd lost 32% of the brain density in my frontal cortex compared to other men my age. And that condition is called encephalomalacia, which translates as a softening of the brain. But I can think perfectly clearly, I can talk perfectly clearly. I'm still me. I'm functioning, I think, at near 100%. But yeah. all her neurocognitive tests that she'd had done by a battery of staff in the hospital that I'd done without her seeing me. I was getting scores like 97 out of 100 and 100% for cognition and uh, mental ability. And then when I rocked up in the rooms, she was expecting a, a frail little guy uh, with slurring and um, movement disorders. Um, just from what she'd seen on the MRI. And there I was, happy as Larry and um, full of beans in front of her. And she said, I, I can't understand how you, how can you be like this? That's <laughs> what she said. And uh, I think it's just, I'm, I just choose to be happy. And um, and but what, what amazes me is that a brain can still retain 100% function or near to, um, uh, when thirty-two percent of it architecturally isn't there, so um, <laughs> well, this is this is in areas um, where I'm amazed by uh, not surprised, but amazed as in awestruck by the, the power of the human body to do things and, and um, my own survival. I can't explain. I, I just tell people I'm being looked after. <laughs> and so I just trust in that process and uh, I'm still here and I tend to be here for as long as possible. Well, uh, I'd love to reach a grumpy old age um, like those old guys um, who were around when I was growing up in New Zealand, the old war veterans who want to clip you around the ear for giving them cheek or whatever, you know. I wouldn't mind reaching a, a good old age, and I think that's totally possible with the way I'm going, yeah. even though I've been told it's not. Um, but that's sort of like a challenge. And so being a former athlete, you, you usually rise to a challenge, and um, that's my challenge. Okay. Uh, yeah. Um, like the, I'm so honoured to have you have been on the podcast. Um, every listener, and there's probably going to be 400, 500 runners that will listen to this and be more the wiser about the Lydiard system. And everyone, you know, you, you, you definitely, um, yeah, you can see that you're still as sharp as a tack and, um, and just what an incredible attitude you have. Um, 
you know, being optimistic. By, by the way, those personal bests that you read out, they, they weren't my personal bests on paper. They what? weren't my best runs, though. Um, what, what were I've your best? To, you know, like, I'm disappointed with the times I achieved. Um, they were nowhere near what I thought I could have done, but I think that's true for just about every athlete anyway at the end of the day. But um, <laughs> I always thought I could go a lot faster um, given the right conditions. But being a, when I was racing at my best, I was a full-time student doing two and three part-time jobs and all that, yeah. running far less mileage than I had in New Zealand. So uh, anyway... Yeah. Uh, that's life that's it that, that, that's it well yeah Keith mm. thanks so much for the the chat um, yeah thank you so much okay pleasure see you Dane see you